So the title of this paper, Natural Law, Natural Inclinations, and Divine Grace, The Trinitarian Pattern of Man's Ordering to God. It's a common trope that St. Thomas Aquinas' approach to natural law supposes a fixed, static human nature whose purposes are set into the physical reality of who we are with little room for the more human dimensions of our personhood. So to take just one influential example of this, Karl Rahner proposed an existential ethics as an alternative to pre-modern theories of natural law, precisely because he thought that analyzing a moral life by means of human nature and universal commands of the law did not take a full account of the dynamic power of human freedom by which human beings participate in the creative will of God. But this common trope, when it's applied to Aquinas, is false and misleading. Aquinas, following Aristotle, understands nature not as something static, but precisely as a principle of dynamism, a principle of motion, of activity and rest. What is more, it is an architectonic principle for Thomas Aquinas that the pattern of the Trinitarian processions in God is at the very foundation of the world, characterizes creation itself, and marks all of the triune God's actions in it, and is likewise the pattern by which the rational creature is ordered back to the Trinity by nature and by grace. This principle is rarely treated by contemporary commentators when they speak of natural law in Aquinas, and often it's, often it's not even acknowledged. But I would contend it is essential for seeing Aquinas' teaching on natural law in a properly theological framework. As Aquinas himself says, quote, the philosophers consider creatures as they subsist in their proper natures, but the theologian considers creatures as they come forth from the first principle and are ordered to their last end, who is God. This paper will show how this principle of Trinitarian dynamism is powerfully present in Aquinas' account of natural law. And so the paper has three parts. Part one addresses how God creates changeable creatures with natures imprinted with dynamic inclinations towards returning to him so that each moves towards a more perfect assimilation to God according to a Trinitarian pattern. Then part two discusses how this dynamism functions in man who is created not only in the image of God, but also in the image of the Trinity, in the order of nature and in the order of grace. Part three then examines the implications this has for Aquinas' teaching on natural law and on the new law of the Holy Spirit, whereby the rational creature is assimilated more perfectly to the Word and the Holy Spirit according to the pattern of their processions. So our goal is to underscore the deep connection of Aquinas' natural law teaching with his theology of the divine missions, with his theology of grace, and including the strongly theocentric character of his teaching on law and its harmony with his, with his teaching on grace. So, part one, the Trinitarian dynamism of exitus and reditus 
in nature. Let us begin with how, in Aquinas' understanding, the inner dynamism of nature is a key feature of all creatures, so all creatures. St. Thomas explains this in detail in Book 4 of his Sentences Commentary, beginning with the truth that God is the first mover of all things. God's motion within created natures, St. Thomas explains, is qualitatively different from the motion of something from outside, which is called by Aquinas violent motion. He means their motion where the source of motion is external to the thing moving. So he writes, and this is the first big block quotation, in violent motions, the impression left by a first mover in secondary movers is outside their natures, and hence the activity resulting from this impression is difficult and wearisome to them. In contrast, in natural motions, the impression left by the first mover in the secondary movers is a natural cause to them, and so the activity resulting from this impression is fitting and sweet. Hence, Wisdom 8 says that God disposes all things sweetly, because each thing, from its naturally infused nature, tends toward that to which it is ordered by divine providence according to the exigency of the received impression. So what Aquinas is saying here is that the natural appetite or inclination of each thing, of each nature, is something intrinsic to it. Only God the creator, as the first cause of all things and the author of each thing, of each nature, only God can instill this kind of natural motion in a thing. So this natural motion is a feature of the order of the whole, the whole creation, and of each creature's place in that creation. And as Aquinas' text continues, he integrates this claim into a powerfully theocentric understanding of creation. So resuming the text from Aquinas. And because all things proceed from God, insofar as he is good, as Augustine and Dionysius say, hence everything created is inclined, according to an impression received from the creator, to desire the good according to its mode. So that a certain circular motion, circulatio, is therefore found in things as coming forth from the good, they tend back to the good. That's the end of the quotation. Now, this text gives us a key insight. The circular exitus reditus movement of creatures, that's something very famous in Aquinas' thought. Most teachers teaching a beginning course on Aquinas begin with this principle. This circular exitus reditus movement of creatures takes place in and through the dynamic natures that God imprints on them. Just as those natures come from God as their creator and first cause, so also are they ordered back to God and have a dynamic inclination to return to him by their natural appetites or inclinations for their own goods. But there's another connection here. It's not often noticed. And it allows us to glimpse the extraordinary degree to which Aquinas' teaching, including his teaching on nature, natural inclinations, and thus on natural law, also has 
a Trinitarian dimension. So to see this, we should recall how, uh, this is a very important principle for Aquinas, how the eternal processions in God, the procession of the Son from the Father and the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son, how these eternal processions in God are at work in the processions of creatures from God. So another quotation from Aquinas. The temporal procession of creatures is derived from the eternal processions of the persons. For as always, that which is first is the cause of what comes afterwards, according to the philosopher Aristotle. Thus, the first procession is the cause and ratio of every subsequent procession. I'll skip the rest of that paragraph. And that's the end of the quotation from Aquinas. Aquinas' teaching on this point is easy to misunderstand if it's not grasped as a part of his sophisticated theology of the triune God, with the careful distinctions he draws between how we speak of the three divine persons and of the one divine essence or nature. So as creator, the triune God is the one source and principle of the entire universe, and every divine action in the world, every divine action ad extra, is inseparably a single act of all three divine persons. Yet, within this joint efficient causality of all three persons, Aquinas holds that we can distinguish how, quote, the divine persons have causality with respect to the creation of things according to the ratio of their processions, and specifically that their processions are the rationes of the production of creatures, end quote. What does this mean? To state it in other words, the whole trinity is one efficient cause of creatures according to the unity of the divine essence. And the divine processions also exercise an exemplar causality within this one efficient causality according to the proper rationes of their processions. So St. Thomas offers an analogy to help us understand this. The Father creates through the Word and the Holy Spirit in a way like how a carpenter makes a table through the plan of the table he conceives in his mind and through the love of his will for some good, why he's making the table. So, for example, Aquinas affirms that, quote, the word has a certain affinity, quandum affinitatis rationem, to all creatures. And he goes on in the rest of that long quotation to explain precisely what he means by that, but in the interest of time I will skip the rest of that quotation and move to the Holy Spirit. He speaks in a parallel register about the Holy Spirit. This is the last line, the last sentence of the next large quotation. The Holy Spirit, who is the love by which the Father loves the Son, is also the love by which he loves the creature, imparting to it its own perfection. And Aquinas puts this even more simply, and this is just the last line of that next, the very next long quotation that you have. The love of God is the cause of the goods of nature. We could spend a long time talking about this principle, about the causality of the processions in the coming forth of creatures, 
But this is not my main theme. This is just a preparation for my main theme, so I will move on. But what you see in these texts is that Aquinas views creation and created natures from above, from the perspective of what is absolutely first. And what is absolutely first is the procession of the word and the procession of love from the Father. But it's important for my theme that we not stop here. The Trinitarian processions are not only the ratio, the cause, the origin, the exemplar of the coming forth of creatures from God in creation, they are that, but also, and very importantly, they are also the ratio, cause, origin, exemplar of the return of creatures to God. So this is the movement of reditus, not just exitus, but also reditus, has a Trinitarian pattern. So Aquinas writes, and this is the next long quotation in your text. In the coming forth of creatures, the exitus of creatures from the first principle, there is a certain circulation, circulatio, or circling back, regiratio, such that everything returns to that from which it proceeded as a principle, as if returning to its end. Therefore, as the processions of the persons is the ratio of the production of creatures from the first principle, so also the same procession is the ratio of returning unto the end. Because just as we were created through the Son and the Holy Spirit, likewise we are also joined through them to our ultimate end. Now this may seem very abstract to you, but it is extremely important. It is a capital text. And it opens up in Aquinas' theology a vast Trinitarian vista. The processions of the Son and the Holy Spirit are not only at the origin of things, the origin of creation. They're also the pattern of our return to God. So to connect this to what we've been treating uh, earlier, this means that there is a Trinitarian pattern within or undergirding the dynamic of the natural appetite of creatures by which each creature seeks the good according to the mode of its nature. Okay, so this brings us to part two. Natural appetite and the divine persons. When we have once taken in this Trinitarian perspective, it works an important change in how we're now able to view creation and created natures in light of the Trinity. We can now grasp not only how there is a trace of the Trinitarian processions, a vestige in each creature according to its nature, we'll speak about that in just a moment, but further, how each creature's appetites and inclinations, that is, the inner dynamism of each nature, how this is a facet of the overarching dynamism of the whole cosmos which returns to the triune God according to a Trinitarian pattern. St. Thomas contrasts the way this works in, a, in irrational creatures with the higher way that the rational creatures return to God. So, another long quotation from Aquinas. The circular motion, I believe the word again is circulatio, the circular motion of exitus and reditus is perfect in certain creatures, while in others it remains imperfect. For those creatures which are not ordered to attain to the first good from which they proceeded, but only to come to some likeness to it, 
they do not perfectly have this circular motion. Rather, only that creature, which in some way is able to attain to the first principle itself, perfectly has this circular motion. This belongs only to the rational creatures, which are able to reach God himself through knowledge and love. Irrational, so that's the end of the quotation. Irrational creatures return to God only imperfectly, Aquinas says, because they can only attain to a more distant likeness of God, but not to God himself. Only the rational creature who has a nature capable of knowing and of loving, and hence a nature open to being raised up to God himself, only the rational creature has a perfect circular motion of reditus to God. So before turning to the image of God in human beings and its perfect return to God, let us pause for a moment and just stay with this very interesting idea about irrational creatures, about the, the reditus of irrational creatures. Think of stones or plants or animals, dogs and cats. As Aquinas explains elsewhere, they may have an imperfect return. Their return is, is not perfect, but they do really tend towards God. And they really are assimilated to a likeness of him. How? Specifically insofar as they act according to their natural appetite. And so here's another long text from Aquinas, from the Summa Contra Gentiles. Even things that lack cognition can be made to work for an end and to desire the good by natural appetite and to desire a divine likeness and their proper perfection. There is no difference between saying these things, since by tending to their own perfection, they tend to the good, because a thing is good to the extent that it is perfected. Moreover, insofar as they tend to what is good, they tend to a divine likeness. Because insofar as something is good, it is assimilated to God. Indeed, they tend to their proper good because they tend to a divine likeness, and not the reverse. And so it is evident that all things desire a divine likeness as a kind of final end. It's a fascinating text, something that I'd, I'd never noticed before and discovered in, in working on this paper. The natural inclinations of creatures have their first explanation in this return to God. So ultimately, this natural appetite, even of irrational creatures, is grounded in and explained by the reditus principle, that each thing tends to a divine likeness and to God himself according to the kind of thing that it is. In fact, St. Thomas even says, quote, all things were made for this reason that they would be assimilated to the divine goodness. So you have here a marvelous theocentric perspective on creation. Really is true that everything finds its meaning in a way in reference to God. We gain further insight into this by connecting this teaching to Aquinas' teaching on how irrational creatures manifest vestiges of the Trinity. So, once the Trinity has been revealed to us, Aquinas holds, the dynamic return of irrational creatures to God, quote, leads us to recognize the divine persons. And specifically, we find a vestige in them pointing to the Father, who is the principle without a principle, insofar as irrational creatures come forth from a principle. 
And we find a vestige pointing to the divine word, who is the uncreated exemplar of all creatures, insofar as they have a form or a nature. And we find a vestige in them pointing to the Holy Spirit, who proceeds by way of love, insofar as these creatures are ordered to, and hence love, the divine goodness according to their natural appetite. Now, he doesn't think these are proofs for the Trinity, but once we have learned of the Trinity by faith, by divine revelation, then we can recognize these vestiges in creatures. So, according to the logic of Aquinas's position, then, we should be able to detect the patterns of the eternal processions, not only in the exitus, but also in the reditus of irrational creatures, a pattern of the word's procession, as an irrational creature attains to the perfection of its natural form, of which the word is an eternal exemplar, and of the Holy Spirit's procession, as the creature's actual movement towards its good has the Holy Spirit as love as its exemplar. Okay, enough about irrational creatures. Let's now return to the rational creature, which is the main thread of my argument. And let's consider now the rational creature as imago dei, made in the image of God. This teaching in Aquinas is very famous, and rightly so. And it too has an explicitly Trinitarian dimension. So Aquinas writes, the triune God made man to its image, that is, to the image of the whole Trinity. And there's another longer quotation that I'm going to skip that says essentially the same thing in a little more detail. A rational creature, according to Aquinas, represents the Trinity according to its natural faculties of intellect and will. But this is only to consider the Trinitarian image in man in its lowest and most basic sense. In truth, this image is meant to be dynamic in the highest degree. We are meant to attain to communion with the divine persons themselves. And so later in the Summa Theologiae, Aquinas explains that this image of the triune God is realized on three levels, where each level refers to the dynamic return of man to God. So, first, in the first way, the image of the Trinity is really present, quote, insofar as man has a natural aptitude, aptitudinum, for knowing and loving God, and this aptitude consists in the very nature of the mind. Okay, that's the first level. But there are two additional and higher ways in which this image can exist in man. And this is the block quotation next. The second, so this is a quote from Aquinas, the second is insofar as man actually or habitually knows and loves God, albeit imperfectly, and this is an image through the conformity of grace. The third way is insofar as man actually knows and loves God perfectly, and this image is grasped according to the likeness of glory. The first image is found in all men, the second only in the just, and the third only in the blessed, those in heaven. So in all men, that's, that's the end of the quotation from Aquinas, in all men, the nature of the human mind gives rise to a natural aptitude for knowing and loving God. Now, a very important note here. This is not a static quality. Aptitudo, Aquinas' word there, points us to a dynamic inclination towards knowing God. 
It's a part of the movement of ready-tos. It's not yet a desire to know and love God in the supernatural order of grace, however. In that order, in the supernatural order, man is made a friend of God who knows him and loves him as God knows and loves himself. But here, Aquinas is speaking about the natural aptitude of the mind endowed with the light of reason to reach for God insofar as reason is able to do so, to know him, for example, as the philosophers know him as the first cause of all that is. An important uh, point to, to note here, Aquinas does not always clearly flag the distinction between, on the one hand, man's natural capacity, and thus his natural aptitude or drive to know and love God according to natural reason, and on the other hand, man's openness to being elevated above this natural capacity and, and natural aptitude to a supernatural desire to know and love God. This is, a, this is a desire of a different order. And it can only take place if God awakens man by grace to this supernatural offer of God, this offer of divine friendship. But this distinction between these two orders, these two desires that the human nature can have, one natural, one supernatural, it is a fundamental distinction for Aquinas' whole theology it's clearly evident in many places, and as in the text I've just quoted, it's everywhere presupposed by Aquinas. So this is why man's nature, considered at the first level of the Imago Dei, and before man receives the gift of grace, this is why it has an only imperfect reditus to God. By his natural powers, man cannot attain to God as he is in himself. But now at the second level, this is when grace is given to us in this life, Aquinas describes a, a higher and a qualitatively different likeness of the Trinity. It's a likeness through the conformity of grace, he says. So what kind of conformity does he have in mind? He makes it clear in a, a host of other texts. By sanctifying grace, Man, quote, participates in the divine nature through the nature of the soul according to a certain likeness through a certain regeneration or recreation, end quote. Endowed with grace, the soul does not remain on the level of created nature. Rather, it undergoes a supernatural recreation that gives it a new and higher likeness to the divine nature, something that it would be impossible for it to achieve by its own intrinsic powers. This gift of grace, elevating the soul's nature, likewise elevates man's powers of intellect and will as he receives the gifts of faith and charity in this life. So this brings us to the Trinity. It is a capital teaching of Aquinas that in these gifts, in this life, faith, charity, the soul, this means your soul, if you are in a state of sanctifying grace, your soul receives a new and proper assimilation to the processions of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that the divine persons, therefore, are sent to and dwell in your soul in person according to these gifts of faith and charity. Now, this is typically spoken of when talking about Aquinas' thought under the heading of the invisible missions of the divine persons, 
You can read about it in question 43 of the Prima Pars of the Summa. But I want to highlight here how these missions take the image of God, the imago dei, from the first level to the second level, supernaturally transforming and elevating man's natural aptitude or inclination. So we're back to desire, to natural inclinations. So in this, we're not talking about something static. We're not talking about a static nature that is moved to another level. At the second level of the Imago Dei, faith and charity elevate and energize man's powers so that he will, in some measure, actually know and love God in this life, although he remains a wayfarer. So these gifts, faith and charity, are in dynamic actuality how a creature is assimilated to the Son and the Holy Spirit, and consequently faith and charity become the vectors by which man returns to the Father according to the processions of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Quote, Through his gifts, we are joined to the Holy Spirit himself, as by those gifts he is assimilating us to himself. End quote. Aquinas writes, and another quotation, the spirit of God, namely the love of God, descends to man from above and makes him ascend. As Aquinas puts it in another text, and this is a long quotation, because a likeness to the properties of the persons is caused in us according to the reception of these two gifts, the divine persons are therefore said to be in us to the extent that we are assimilated to them. Whence, in the reception of such gifts, the divine persons are possessed in a new mode, as if leading us to our end and joining us to it. So St. Thomas is here describing in full Trinitarian color how, by grace, human nature, as the image of God, is given the power, the supernatural dynamic power, to rise to God by a perfect circular motion of reditus, according to the pattern of the processions of the divine persons. And then finally, something I won't spend any time on, at the third level of the image of God, when you reach heaven, the reditus is complete. The blessed in heaven are so assimilated to the divine processions in perfect actuality that they can be said to possess and enjoy them perfectly and unchangeably in the beatific vision. All right. Now this brings us to part three, natural law and the new law of grace. Let's now examine the implications of this teaching for Aquinas' treatment of natural inclinations, natural law, and the new law, which he calls the new law of grace or of the Holy Spirit. So before we get to a definition of the natural law, however, we need to say a word first about eternal law, since if you've read Aquinas' treatise on law, you know that he defines natural law by reference to eternal law, so we have to start there. Aquinas says that the eternal law is, quote, the very plan, the ratio, in God for the government of things as existing in the ruler of the universe. So in short, It's God's providential ordering of the whole of creation and of each creature in it with God himself as its final end. 
So all things are ordered back to God. This is the eternal law in God, this plan in God. So when Aquinas takes up the natural law in the Prima Secundae of the Summa, he begins with what might seem like a detour because he starts by talking about irrational creatures. Uh, but now we'll understand that since we've talked about irrational creatures earlier in this paper. He speaks of irrational creatures participating in the eternal law. So armed with the insights that we've gained, we can see that Aquinas is building on the different modes of reditus by which creatures return to God. So another long quotation. All things participate in some way in the eternal law, insofar as from its impression they have natural inclinations to their proper acts and ends. But among other creatures, the rational creature is subject to divine providence in a certain more excellent way, insofar as it shares in providence, providing for itself and for others. In this way, it too participates in eternal reason through which it has a natural inclination to its due act and end. And such a participation of the eternal law in the rational creature is called natural law. The point here is that while irrational creatures participate in God's eternal plan, ordering all things to himself, but blindly, stones or trees, cats and dogs, they do not understand that they are returning to God. It is natural to man, however, to participate knowingly and freely in this return to God, as he understands his place in the ordering of all things and directs both himself and other things to their fitting ends in that plan of order and ultimately to God. And according to Aquinas, this is precisely what a law is. It's a, an ordering of things. So man's self-ordering as he understands his place in the cosmos is the natural law in man. And it is the natural dynamic of man's readitude to God according to his unaided natural powers by which, as we've seen, he is a certain image of the Holy Trinity. Okay, so when we're talking about natural law, we're just talking about what natural reason is capable of. We're not yet talking about the supernatural return. So the inclinations that man has by nature are key here. Another short one-sentence quotation. The order of the precepts of the natural law is according to the order of natural inclinations, Aquinas writes. This is a very famous line, very, very famous in natural law, and you have many, many authors who've written a great deal on precisely this point and disagree uh, a lot about it. So now I'm going to give you my interpretation. So Aquinas here uses a threefold distinction. He's talking about the order of precepts of the natural law according to the order of natural inclinations. And he follows the three levels of natural inclinations that he identifies elsewhere. First, you find what man shares with all substances, which is the natural desire to remain in being according to its nature. Each thing tries to stay what it is. A stone resists being broken apart. It tries to stay in being, as it were, and so do we. There is a corresponding precept of the natural law, 
which is to conserve and protect human life. Next, you find what man shares with other animals. This is a sense appetite, a sensitive appetite, an appetite, for example, for sexual intercourse and the raising of children. And then finally, at the highest level, Aquinas lists man's inclinations according to good, according to natural reason. For example, as man has a natural inclination to know the truth about God. So he's talking about the highest inclinations in man just according to nature. It's the inclination according to our rationality. Now, what he's just written here is extraordinary. It's an extraordinary line. And given what we have seen above, we can now understand its full significance. Aquinas is clearly speaking here about an inclination to know the truth about God that is proper to man according to his rational nature. This is not yet a supernatural orientation to God. In fact, Aquinas adds that man desires to know this, to know God, according to natural reason. So Aquinas is not talking here about a desire for the beatific vision or for supernatural friendship with God. Not yet. Such desires are not natural desires. They're supernatural desires, and they have to be elicited by God's offer of grace. Rather, what Aquinas is talking about here in speaking about natural law is uh, he is identifying the imperfect movement of man's mind as it returns to God according to man's nature and his natural powers of intellect and will. So Aquinas thinks that by man's natural powers, he can come to some knowledge of God from the effects of God found in creation, but that man is not able to arrive at a knowledge of God as he is in himself in this way. And this also means that there is a precept of the natural law here. It enjoins man to seek natural knowledge of God, to shun ignorance and the allure of lower things, to raise his mind to the true and the good insofar as he can. And there's also a natural law precept for man to order himself under God by his willing, so not only by his active intellect, but also an active will, namely to render God thanks, honor, and worship in the virtue of religion. There's a natural obligation to honor and thank and worship God. So we can understand Aquinas' teaching on natural law as laying out how man, as an image of the Trinity by nature, should embark on a movement of reditus to God by understanding the order of the cosmos with his mind and freely directing himself to God as the origin and final end of the cosmos by his will. Yet, even for a nature untouched by sin, this return to God following the precepts of the natural law would be imperfect without grace, enlightening and elevating man's natural activity and his nature. After the fall, of course, so even if we had not fallen, we would need grace to be perfectly ordered to God. But after the fall, the need for grace is even greater because once wounded by sin, human beings cannot even return to God according to the imperfect way that an unfallen nature could have. So now we come to my final subject, which is 
Aquinas is teaching on the new law. So like the natural law, he explains the new law is also implanted in the human heart. This is a very interesting text uh, from the Summa. Quote, something is implanted in man in two ways. One way is by pertaining to his nature. And thus, the natural law is a law implanted in man. The other way is that something is implanted in man as if superadded to his nature through a gift of grace. And this is how the new law is implanted in man, not only indicating what he should do, but also helping him to carry it out. So natural law is, that's the end of the quotation, natural law is implanted in man in such a way that absent the wound of sin, he would have been able to know his place under God and hence to order himself by his willing back to God under his own power. But the new law does even more than this because it is the grace of the Holy Spirit given by and through Christ. And, and I hope that you see that in a way we've, we've come back to uh, one of the principles we began with about how God moves all things sweetly. So God is able to move us through our natural desires to something that we, we desire it, we desire of our nature to seek these goods that are proper to our nature. And Aquinas' claim is also that with grace, God is doing something like that only now in the supernatural dimension so that we develop a natural, not, or sorry, not a natural, but a supernatural desire for God to know him by, by faith and ultimately by vision and to love him by supernatural charity. So, by grace, not only are the wounds of sin healed, but grace elevates man and gives him a new supernatural principle for his knowing and his willing. He begins to know God in a higher way by faith, and moved and helped by grace, he begins to act under the new law by charity. So this is the next long quotation that you have from Aquinas. Quote, the law of the Spirit is the law which is the Spirit. For a law is given that men may be led to good through it. But the Holy Spirit, dwelling in the mind, does not only teach what should be done by illuminating the intellect about what to do, but it also inclines the affection to acting rightly. In another way, the law of the Spirit can be called a proper effect of the Holy Spirit, namely, faith working through love. This point, that the Holy Spirit helps man to fulfill the law, is a key link to all that we've treated above by about natural appetites and natural inclinations as being the dynamism of the natural return to God. So what we see now is that with the help of grace, the grace of the new law, man receives a new impetus of return to God. With the help of the grace of the new law, and by the, by the power of this grace, he can attain to the divine persons themselves. And likewise, just as the precepts of the natural law follow the order of our natural inclinations, so also the new law gives to man a new supernatural desire for God in the virtue of charity. And this supernatural habitus makes man a new creation. And so Aquinas explains that the new law, the gift of grace, 
grants man something like a second nature, a new and higher elevation. Quote, a man acts from himself when he acts from a habitus befitting his nature, because a habitus inclines one like a nature. Therefore, since the grace of the Holy Spirit is like an interior habitus infused in us, inclining us to act aright, it makes us freely do those things that are harmonious with grace and to avoid what is opposed to grace. End of quotation. As grace perfects and supernaturally elevates nature, so also charity perfects and supernaturally elevates man's natural appetite for the good. And in like manner, the new law perfects and supernaturally elevates the natural law, so that man no longer returns to God imperfectly in the mode of nature, but perfectly as he attains to the divine persons themselves. So let me conclude by underlining the strongly Trinitarian dimension of this new law. It's nothing other than the Holy Spirit's personal presence in the soul, which is made according to the gift of charity, which has the Spirit's personal procession as its eternal exemplar. But of course, this charity presupposes faith, by which the soul is assimilated to the personal procession of the word by way of intellect, according to which the divine son is personally present in the soul, along with the spirit. And what is more, the grace of the new law only comes to us through the visible mission of the son in the incarnation. This is a large point that could be the subject of a whole book, really, that in being sent into the world visibly, the Son takes on our human nature and breathes forth the Holy Spirit to the world so that now not only is there a visible mission of the divine person of the Son, but there is this invisible gift of the Son and the Holy Spirit to us according to the gifts of faith and charity. So in this breathing forth of the Holy Spirit by Christ, the font of grace opens up and the whole world now is able to return to God. In the thought of Thomas Aquinas, this is the most perfect explanation of our readitus to God. The word of God himself enters his creation, heals the wounds of fallen human nature, and breathes forth his spirit. And as we receive the Holy Spirit, our minds are raised up to God in a new and more perfect way, according to the processions of word and of love. Thus, by faith, man begins in some measure to know God as God knows himself, akin to how the Father conceives the word as the perfect expression of himself. And likewise, his rational appetite is supernaturally transformed by charity so that he begins in some measure to love God as God loves himself, akin to how the Holy Spirit proceeds as the mutual love of the Father and the Son. Thank you.